Hi, I'm Pastor Adam, and you're listening to the Orange United Methodist Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that wants to help you find your place in God's story, and we hope that this sermon will guide you along that journey. Visit orangemethodist.org for more information about location, service times, upcoming events, and ways to give. We hope you enjoy. Thanks be to God indeed. On the day of Pentecost, they were all gathered together in one place. Well, this Pentecost is already off to a very interesting start because we are not gathered in one place as the disciples were. Rather, we are gathered in many places, not only all over our community, but all over the world something that we could not have imagined 84 days ago. An impossible. And so today, it feels like this is the most important Pentecost of our lives. We're not gathered in one place. And that reality means we need the Spirit in a new way, a way that we haven't, at least in my lifetime, needed before. On Pentecost, the Spirit descends only after Jesus' resurrected body has ascended to be with the Father. And Jesus has made himself known to the disciples after Easter, and he instructs them that he is going to a place that they cannot go. But he is sending the Spirit. And that Spirit descends to give us Jesus' presence, Jesus' companionship, and to make us his body on earth. In the season of pandemic and injustice and upheaval, we need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to be present with us in a new way because the physical body of Christ, the church is no longer physically gathered. Yes, virtually, thanks be to God, but not embodied. We need the Spirit, and we need the Spirit to do a new thing. If we look back over our last worship series, Beyond the Tomb, there we encountered the disciples facing something new, facing something that they had never experienced before. They were now to carry on the mission of Christ. Only now, they must do it without Jesus being physically present. They didn't know how to do the things that he did without him, and especially because they had never done the things that he did. He was the one that fed the masses by breaking the bread and blessing it and offering the fish. They only handed it out. He was the one that called Lazarus from the tomb. They only moved the stone. Now Jesus is gone But they have to carry on his mission, and it seems all by themselves. It makes me think of that first time of getting behind the wheel when I got my driver's license, and you get to drive all by yourself. For months, mom or dad have sat in that passenger seat, and they have noticed the speed that you were driving, how fast you were braking, pointing out road signs, stoplights, and all other sorts of distractions that may be around you. But now, they are not there. 
Now you get behind the wheel for that first time. And you realize how important it was, how helpful it was. It may have seemed annoying at the time, but you realize now there are significant consequences to not paying attention to some of those things that they've pointed out. And it creates a fear. That fear can be paralyzing. That's the situation that the disciples now find themselves in. They have to get behind the wheel. And Jesus is not there. I think they probably would have rather have been in the passenger seat than in the driver's seat. And the disciples, they express that discomfort in doing this new thing, really anything without Jesus. Their actions after Jesus' death and even after his resurrection suggest that, as Adam said, they were paralyzed with fear as to how they would do what Jesus did without him. They long to stay in the passenger seat or to get out of the car altogether. They turn back on the road to Emmaus. They pack up and head home, go back to their lives and what they'd known before Jesus called them. The disciples, they returned to their day jobs, fishing. They returned to what they knew because they're afraid of what they don't know. They were lost. How do we live in a world without Jesus? I guess we do what we did before we knew him. Fish, go home, abandon the mission. But Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, pursues them. Drives up and rolls down the window, if you will. To reveal and remind them that even in their fear, even though things have changed and they will never be the same again, even so, the story isn't over. Jesus doesn't want them to go back to the way things were before. He calls them into a new thing, and he tells them that they can do this new thing because even though Jesus is going to a place that they cannot, they're going to have his spirit, the spirit, the very same spirit that descended upon Jesus and blessed his ministry in Luke chapter 4. That same spirit will come after Jesus' ascension and empower the disciples to not just be disciples, but apostles, empower them into ministry. And as John's gospel reminds them, they are not abandoned. They're not orphaned. Rather, they're promised something that will enable them to do a new thing, to step forward into the future with hope instead of turning back in fear. That's Pentecost. When these disciples who have felt scared and abandoned receive the spirit that propels them into a new way of being, that propels them out of fear and into faith, a faith that like a fire cannot be contained in the upper room where they find themselves, but that they must share. A sound like the rush of a violent wind filled the house. Tongues as a fire appeared and rested on them. And suddenly they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that the promise that Jesus made came true. The Spirit of God now dwelled within them. And when we look back to the Old Testament, we're able to see that the Spirit of God came upon specific people at a specific time for specific purposes. For example, in Exodus chapter 31, 
God tells Moses that he is giving Bezalel his divine spirit, a spirit with ability, with intelligence and knowledge in every kind of craft for the specific purpose of building up the tabernacle and all that would go in it. Now, because God always does remarkable things, I sort of have a feeling that when God tells Moses that he is giving his divine spirit to Bezalel, Moses probably had to react inside by saying, Bezalel? Seriously? That's the last guy I would think of. But you know, God often does call the least and the last ones that we would think of. Jesse's youngest and smallest son, who would be king of Israel. A poor teenage girl from Nazareth who would give birth to a savior. Specific people at a specific time for specific purposes. But now, this is something new. Those who were once students of Jesus have now graduated from being disciples. And they are now sent forth as apostles. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they boldly proclaim a faith that has now been made real for them. They boldly proclaim that salvation has come to the masses who have gathered there in Jerusalem for the festival of weeks, also known as the festival of the first fruits of the harvest. People from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, and from all over are hearing these Galilean men speaking, and it's as if they are speaking in their own language about God's deeds of power. How is that received? Well, some are asking one another, what does this mean? Yet some flat out reject it. They sneer and say that they must be filled with new wine. Now, we know some that are gathered there are probably those that are outside of the faith, so it's easy to see how they might have rejected it. But we know also that there are many there gathered of the very same faith. But maybe, like the disciples had previously been, maybe they were filled with faith, but also doubt. Maybe they worshiped and yet disbelieved. Because this is a new thing that is happening. And something that no one had ever experienced before in this way. Oftentimes in our humanity, we simply don't like things that are new. We don't like change. Or we don't like things that we can't understand. We, even within our faith communities, we don't like something new. We don't like change. For example, when you were, were able to come to church... And you walk to your seat that you always sit in. And maybe there's somebody new sitting there. And you have to sit somewhere else. We don't like that. We don't like these new things sometimes. And you know what? Even right now, we're seeing that we don't like something new. We read an article just this week that cited research by the Barna Group that stated that 50% of regular churchgoers currently are no longer watching any form of live stream worship, while yet at the very beginning, so many were. Why is that? 
Maybe it's because we're finding it difficult to believe that we're a part of a connected body of Christ virtually and through these ways. But maybe also, just like on that day of Pentecost, we're looking at the screens and we're seeing the people up there. And maybe we're saying to ourselves, they're just drunk with new wine. Sometimes doing a new thing is uncomfortable. And we may mistake it for it being wrong. And doing a new thing will be uncomfortable. But that does not mean that it's not good. I'm sure that you all right now are having to do new things in this new reality we find ourselves in. Wearing a face mask that fogs up your glasses continually. Having to learn new technology just to be able to do your job from home. All the while still having to take care of the kids. Ordering your groceries and literally everything else online. All of this might be a new thing for you. All of this is a bit uncomfortable. And we feel it too. Do you realize how uncomfortable it is to do this? To try to stand in an almost empty room and look at the lens of a camera to try to deliver a message? I mean, to talk to a camera. We have no training for this. And so to talk to a camera in a nearly empty room and try to use humor as a part of your message, to have a joke as a part of the sermon that nobody laughs at? Adam, that's not the camera. <laughs> but I do, I do agree, absolutely. Sometimes we can be scared of doing a new thing. And I think of how easily Peter could have stopped his speech after those in the crowd accused him of being drunk. He'd never done this before. How intimidating. How many of us would have just given up, paying attention to the one person ridiculing us, instead of paying attention and leaning into the possibility of the 3,000 nodding and listening. Peter does a new thing. Peter tells the story of who Jesus is who Jesus was, and who Jesus continues to be even now, despite the risk. And the scripture reveals that some 3,000 receive it. Some 3,000 receive Peter's word of hope, Peter's testimony, Peter's promise that surely the presence of the Lord is in this place and we can feel his mighty power and his grace. And that presence, that spirit, it's here now. And everyone has access to it. Men and women, young and old, none of us are excluded and none of us are excused mm. from this new thing that God is calling us into. We are called to dream and vision with the spirit that burns in our hearts and sets the world on fire, a fire for justice. And if ever there has been a time in this season of pandemic and injustice and upheaval. Mm. This season has revealed just the depth of inequality in our society. We need that fire for justice to burn. And it sets a fire for service in our hearts, a fire for belonging, a fire to tell our brothers and sisters that they are not abandoned, that they are not orphaned, but that they have a place here in God's story. Church, I've seen this fire, this Pentecost spirit, this breath that calls us all to do a new thing. I see this fire every time I'm on a Zoom call and one of you says, 
hey, bear with me. I've, I've never done this before. You are doing a new thing. I see it every time that I get to watch other churches and their worship services online. And I see these pastors with such limited resources doing the very best that they can to communicate the message of the gospel of hope. But they're doing a new thing. I see it every Sunday when we do gather together as we watch and witness your comments and your interaction during worship. We are doing a new thing. I see it in our healthcare workers who are having to creatively navigate shortages of supplies and limited supplies to do a new thing. I see it in our youth group who just this week gathered together in our parking lot, face mask on, chairs spread out doing a new thing, or you who gathered yesterday for our parade for our graduates. We've never done that before. We're doing a new thing. I've seen it in our outreach group, who is just this week committed $2,500 of your gifts to help feed the hungry in Chapel Hill and Hillsborough through Porch. And I've seen it through the way that we have partnered with Jersey Mike's. And this coming Thursday, we're going to feed the day and night shift of the 6th Bed Tower at UNC Memorial. That staff that is treating so many of those with the COVID-19 virus. You are doing a new thing. I see it in our finance committee who met just this week to say, we need a new budget. Because the one we had doesn't fit our current reality. We are doing a new thing. And I see it in every person who wears a mask when they enter into a store. A mask not to protect themselves, but frankly, because it might protect someone else. Again, doing a new thing. And every time we do a new thing, we may feel the call to go back to Egypt, to go back to what we once knew. And when we feel that call, sometimes we do find ourselves going back to what we knew instead of heading into something new. But we must remember that we are headed to a new promise, the promise of the Spirit that will not abandon us. This fire is a spirit that we can't contain and we can't control. It calls us out of our comfort. It calls us out of our fear and into finding our place within God's unfolding story. It calls us to something new. We may be uncomfortable with something new. But as the old spiritual says, when the spirit says, sing, I'm going to sing. Here at Orange, we have a group of men that gather every Thursday called Band of Brothers. Led by my dear friend, Rick Strunk. This group of men gather, have been gathering for almost 15 years. And almost every time that they met, they have gathered at Bob Evans Restaurant at 7 o'clock on Thursday mornings over on 15501. They gather for the Bible study that Rick is going to lead. But we also know that they gather for the fellowship, for the brotherhood. They gather for the food. And definitely, we gather for the coffee. They have befriended complete strangers in that setting, and they have developed relationships with the wait staff, such as Lee Ray, who now almost feels like family. In fact, they even take up special offerings to mark certain occasions for Lee Ray and share that with her. And then COVID-19 hit, and suddenly their meeting place was closed. Now, 
most of the men that are part of this group, how can I say this delicately, might be in an age bracket that makes them a little more susceptible, perhaps, to this particular virus. And so they couldn't meet in person as they had for almost 15 years. So what did they do? They did a new thing. Rick signed up for a Zoom account, and after missing only one week, we resumed our time connecting, learning this technology that many of these on this, in the Band of Brothers had never participated in before. But now they find themselves in their own homes, being able to tune in and to participate in this Bible study. This is a new thing. And do you know what that has done? We now have men who no longer are able to physically be present when we did meet because they moved away to locations such as Burlington or even Asheville. But now every week they're able to participate once again in the band of brothers. No, we are not together, but we certainly are with one another in this new way. This is a new thing. And it's a, something that is blessing God. I, for one, know how much it's blessing me. Some things that we once knew may never go back to what they used to be. But that does not mean that something new that comes out of this will not be something amazing that brings glory to God. We are all having to do something new. And we will continue to have to do new things. We have that in common with the disciples. The last 50 days since Easter and the last 84 since we were last physically gathered in one place. These days have shaken us. They've disoriented us. But they've also revealed to us that we're never alone in the driver's seat. That the Spirit goes with us, steering, guiding, leading, convicting us with new visions and new dreams, all to do a new thing. And we cannot do it alone. We need the Spirit and we need each other. Church, wherever you are, may this Pentecost find us. May we not gathered in one place. But may it find our hearts gathered and willing to receive that spirit and to do a new thing for the sake of building God's kingdom here on earth. There's a song that we sing many times here at Orange called Build Your Kingdom Here. It's written by a band called, named Rend Collective. This song really is a prayer. Dare I even call it a Pentecostal prayer. And so today we close our message time, offering these words from this song that we're getting ready to share together. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. For we are your church. And we need your power in us. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. And please join us again next week. In the meantime, you can find us online at orangemethodist.org.